All right. To have your Bibles, 2 Samuel. Let's start there. On Saturday, I believe it was Saturday. It all runs together. I believe it was Saturday. Um, I was, or at least I was looking at the lectionary readings for Saturday, the third week in ordinary time. And I, as soon as I read the, as soon as I read the lectionary readings, when I read the first one, I was kind of like, okay, I know this story. Okay, pretty good. It's convicting. Okay, got it. I, I got it. I read the psalm. I'm like, okay, well, the psalm fits perfectly with, with the Old Testament reading. And then when I read the gospel reading, my, just like for a brief second, I was like, why is that? Like, what, wait, what, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I've got an idea. There's something I could do with this. There's something I could do with this. So almost immediately, I ran upstairs, turned on the microphone to do like a devotional kind of like, hey, here's this, here's this idea. What does everyone think about it? But in the middle of trying to record that idea, Becca started calling me. Becca started texting me. Stacy started texting me. Stacy started calling me. And so I'm trying to read the text and things are popping up all over on the MacBook every, and I'm getting messages and I'm like, what is going on? What is going on? Because it sounded like it was the end of the world. Like, you know, okay. And I'm trying, I'm trying my best to read the text of scripture and I'm like, what is happening? So I, I think I did a halfway decent job trying to present the idea, but I, I knew that I wanted to return to it and try to work it out a little bit more. By no means, in any way, shape, or form, am I trying to be dogmatic about this. We, we know this, that when it comes to the lectionary, right, human beings put the scriptures together, right? Okay, in other words, we don't believe in any way, shape, or form it's divinely inspired. Now, the scripture is divinely inspired, but the lectionary itself, putting it together, we don't know. We don't have like some secret code going, well, they chose this passage and this passage for this reason. But sometimes when you're looking at them, you're kind of like, wow, did, someone else had to see this. Someone had to, had to see it, maybe. Or at least in my mind, I think everyone should see it. I'm always like, how do we not see it? Because for me, I it's impossible for me to take two readings and one psalm and not seek connection, right? Trying to, like, I'm thinking, why did they choose these together? Maybe it was just random. Like, hey, we're in Mark and we're in, we're in Samuel. Okay, it's just the next section and not really think, maybe it's that simple, right? But at least for me, I'm always thinking, well, I wonder how these connect. Now, you've always got to be careful, right? You always got to be careful, but sometimes it's like, Oh, come on now. Someone, you had to do this on purpose, right? But then I'll be the one going, it had to be on purpose. And everyone else will be like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. So maybe this is a ridiculous idea, but I, 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 we're going to look at it. So everyone ready? Let's go to 2 Samuel, because the Old Testament reading for Saturday, the third week in ordinary time, was 2 Samuel starting in chapter 12. And as soon as I start reading it, you're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I know this passage, right? This is one of those that we know so very well. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Everyone ready? 2 Samuel chapter 12, start in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. 
Now, if you know the story of David, you know this is not a good situation, right? The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and we know why, right? Because David has committed some serious sins, right? Those sins include adultery, murder, okay, and deceit, right? Trying to cover it all up, okay? Oh, and it also ends up leading to polygamy, but okay, he that, that seems to be an okay situation. Right? But it leads to lots of problems, does it not? And not only that, the, the results of that sin leads to lots of problems. Correct? Okay, so we know, we know, we know then what the story is, but let's see how this goes down. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men and one city, the one rich and the other poor. So he comes to him, and, and some translations, I think even the lectionary has it, has it uh, written this way. Some translations have it like, hey, David, could you help me out with a situation? Hey, I, I, I need your help. Like, you're, you're David. I need your help to help me out, right? And so he starts telling him a story, right? And so well, who's in the story? There were two men in the city. One is rich, one's poor. Here's a rich man, here's a poor man. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was unto him as a daughter. So they really, he really plays this up. This rich man's got everything, but this poor man... All he really has is this one little lamb. So he's got, and he really seems to care a lot about it, right? He cares greatly about it. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was to come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So here's the rich man, someone's traveling, and he's like, oh, I gotta gotta take care of this well, I'm not going to use my stuff to take care of this guy. I know what I'll do. That poor man over there has a lamb. I'll go take that lamb and do what? Kill it and use it, right? And David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, this man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Now, stop right there. Now, before we get to where I, I want to go, all right, we, we have to consider this, all right? There, there's, there's at least two major practical applications we can take from this, okay? First one, the text is not explicit in, but human experience tells us there's a little bit of truth to this. We have a tendency to judge sin most harshly that we ourselves are most guilty of. It may not be identical sin, but similar sin that we perceive in others, we tend to judge more harshly because that righteous indignation is a great way to do what? to deflect and cover what's inside. David gets ticked off, doesn't he? In fact, what is the exact wording? Well, before that, does it describe his anger? 
greatly kindled. It's like fire, right? It's like he's got all the kindling wood and he set it on fire. He's mad. He's not happy. So we always have to ask ourselves when we have some kind of great righteous indignation about this or this or this or this, we have to stop and ask ourselves, Am I mad at that sin or am I really projecting, right? Psychologically, we call that projection, right? Where you project something on someone else. Sometimes we project our own guilt on someone else and then we can condemn it. We can condemn it, but it's taking all the focus off where? Us, us. Now, just um, now, okay, I'm going to help, you know, take corrective action already, right? We're just about 10 minutes in. Okay, so I'm going to make sure we can all stay paying attention. I want someone to find me some scriptures that talks about judging others is how we will be judged. Go. See what you can find. Is there any scriptures? Well, that's telling you, judge others, unless you be judged. But is there any scriptures that talk about the way you judge, you will be judged? Yeah, in the same manner, right? Is there, is there some scriptures that says something along those lines? See, you, go, you can talk amongst yourselves. You can ask your friends. Okay. You can ask AI if you want. I bet you AI will find it really. I can ask AI right now if you want. Some of you don't like AI. AI could be your great friend. Okay, oh, here we go. Matthew chapter... 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Let's look at this. This is an important cross-reference. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. First of all, start in verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So I want you to take, I want I want you to write down two practical concepts here, right? The first practical concept is when we get upset and mad and we want to judge something, we may want to ask ourselves are we projecting something that's inside of us? Are we getting mad at something that we're actually guilty of? And look, if you're a parent, it's easy to do that, right? Sometimes the thing you get most upset about, the thing you get most frustrated about is because your kid is acting like you. Now, not in my case, because when they act like me, I'm like, well, see, that's perfect behavior, right? Okay. But it happens to other parents, I hear, right? When your kids act like you, and, and it's hard for you to see it, is it not? Is it not hard sometimes for us to see? Sometimes it's someone else who comes along and go, you, 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 they're acting like you. And then you're like, shut up. Why are you talking to me, right? But do we not have a tendency to do that? All right, so whenever we feel righteous indignation rising within us, what should we stop and do? I got to look to myself. Why does this sin bother me so much? Why does this sin make me so angry? Why does it make me so mad? There's got to be a reason why. And and, but we love to just say it's righteous indignation. It's I I have righteous indignation. This is why. Are you sure? Because you may be projecting a little bit, right? You know, sometimes, you know, they say, I think maybe you protest a little too much. And there's been a lot of that that's happened within Christianity. There's been people who've been greatly involved 
and ministry against our ministries that are against homosexuality. Condemn it, condemn it, condemn it, condemn it. And then they come out as being the very thing that they've been condemning. And you're like, well, what just happened there? We have, and I, whenever I say this when people get very mad, but it's just true, there's a lot of yelling and screaming in the church about everyone else being pedophiles and grooming children. How many children are sexually molested inside the church every year? There was just a report about the German Protestant church, over 2,200 and something children sexually abused. The numbers are staggering every year. And it's not just Catholics. There were reports about independent fundamental Baptists. There was reports about Southern Baptists. There's been reports about almost every major denomination about children being sexually molested inside church. Well, we run around and scream and point our finger at everybody else. Well, it's always easy to point our finger at everybody else when we've got the same, we've got the same problem. Now, again, always, I want to make, because we're, we're, we, we love to play little games. When you feel righteous indignation about a sin, you need to stop and ask yourself, it may not be the exact same sin, but it may be similar. Is that not the case in David's situation? Did David take someone's lamb? Did David kill someone's lamb? No. But it's similar because he took something that did not belong to him, and he killed someone as well. But the point is, it's similar. So sometimes we're not, unless it's exact, we're like, well, I'm not guilty of that, or I'm not guilty of that, or I'm not guilty. You got to be careful with that because you may be guilty of countless things. You may be guilt, guilty of countless things. There was a situation where there was a woman who she refused to be a part of any same-sex marriages. She didn't want nothing to do with it. She wasn't going to sign marriage license and all of this stuff, and she was condemned it, and there was a big court case and everything. Come to find out, the woman had been married not just once, not just twice, not three times, but four times. And you're like, you're so worried about the sanctity of marriage, and you've been married and divorced four times? Now, is that, it's not the exact same sin, Right? But it's similar. If you're so upset, you're destroying the sanctity of marriage. Well, the church, most churches are made up of, of sometimes 50, 60% of the congregation who's been married, divorced, and remarried. Sometimes we have to look toward it. It's easy to do what? To look at everyone else. In fact, go back to Matthew 7. What does the very next verse say? Verse 3, what does it say? Y'all look at it. Yeah, why do you look at the moat that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? We've got a lot of beams in our own eyes. We do. Now, does that mean, now we've got to be very careful here because we can take this to an extreme, right? Does that mean we never point out sin? No, you can point out sin and acknowledge that you're just as guilty of the same kind of sin. It doesn't mean that we say, well, all sin is okay. We can just say, look, that's wrong. And I'm wrong. Okay. Like it, you can, you can all, we can speak against sin, sin in a more humble way, in a more honest way, in a more real way. 
right? I, I've told the story um, multiple times. I don't know where the story originally arose from, but some guy, every morning before work, he'd stopped at a convenience store, like a convenience store slash gas station. And one day he walked in, and they had a magazine rack put up, and it was all with pornography. So he talked to the manager, and he's like, hey, I can't, I can't ever come back here. And the guy was like, oh, you're offended? He's like, no, the problem is I'm not offended. If I keep coming, I'm going to buy it. That's much more an, that's an honest response. See, I'm just saying we can confront sin in a more honest way, right? I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't confront it, right? I mean, David could have said, well, that probably wasn't a good thing that he did, but, you know. I've done, I've done worse or, I mean, you don't always have to explain everything you've done, but you can say, that's messed up. I'm messed up, okay? We're all messed up, right? Does that make sense? And it's hard to do that because we always want to take that righteous indignation and condemn, but by the, the way you judge, just think about that. The way you judge other, others is the way you will be judged. Come on, I no, I, 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 I we, because I know I, I, I put it this way. You're almost taught from Christian from. It's almost like you become a Christian, and I think the first thing you're taught is to start condemning people. Hey, now that you're a Christian, just know that you're on the winning team, and everybody else is trash. So just start trashing everybody else, right? And then sometimes, and then when you get into the church, you kind of realize. I think we're all trash. And if you don't believe that, just, just go to the next time a church has a business meeting. I mean, you, we start finding out real quick we got problems, right? So the first thing I want you to just realize is righteous indignation sometimes is simply a projection of our own sin, and we have to examine ourselves, right? And then the second thing I want us to consider is the concept of being judged the way we judge other people. You need to be aware. When you're judging someone, do you want to be judged by that same standard? Because most of the time we don't. We just, we, there's just got to be a more... I, I, I know it's, it it's almost seems like when you even talk this way, many in the church will be like, oh, that's that liberal stuff. We don't want... But no, it's being real. We're all messed up sinners. We all are. Your sin may not be my sin. And my sin may not be your sin, but they're probably similar in nature. May not be the exact same thing, right? Does that make sense? I mean, you could have... You, you can have... And I, and I, and I, and I, well, I just have to kind of use this as an example because I've seen this example, seen this example pointed out in books. You can have a preacher up there just running back and forth across the pl- platform, yelling and screaming at kids addicted to social media and they need to put their phones down. And what is their problem? And then the pastor's 400 pounds. Now, does the Bible condemn gluttony? Now, there's a possibility. Now, could have a medical condition. But there's a possibility 400 pounds is proof of gluttony. We don't condemn gluttony that way, do we? So we'll look at other people going, what is your problem? Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep doing that? Like, uh, and why do you keep eating? All right? 
I mean, gluttony is clearly laid out in Scripture as a sin, right? Slothfulness, right? The person who loves slumber, people who love sleep. That's never, I don't think I've ever seen anyone church disciplined for, for slothfulness or for laziness or for liking sleep. I don't think I've ever seen anyone church disciplined for gluttony. Isn't it weird how we do things? We'll have a problem and then we'll point at everyone else's problem. Well, we think we're okay. We're all messed up. That's the thing we need to take from it. David should have just said, man, I don't know why that guy did that. And that's really messed up. The problem is I'm just as messed up as him. And I know that that seems like, it, it almost like, we're, we're losing something from our Christianity. You're like, well, that's not a fun Christianity because our, our favorite thing to do is to condemn everyone else. But it, it really shouldn't be our favorite thing to do. For, because for every sin I condemn, I'm probably guilty of similar. All right? Does, does, can everyone agree that David is really upset here? Can we agree that he's guilty of the same thing? Yes, because we already know this, right? But look what happens, all right? So David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He goes for extreme punishment. The man stole a lamb. And David wants capital punishment. That's serious, is it not? And then what is uh, what is what happens? Uh, and he goes on, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. All right. Well, he. Okay. Well, maybe, 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 maybe. But I'm saying he he's at least. He thinks the man deserves capital punishment. Maybe, maybe, you're right. Maybe the way it's written, he's not necessarily calling for it, but he definitely believes the man deserves it. Right? Because then he says, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did these things and because he had no pity. Yeah, possibly. Right. So either way, David is so mad, he thinks the man should die. Okay. Whether he wants the man to die or actually calls for it, we could, we could go back and forth. That's a good, I'm glad you brought that up, Stephen, because the how you read that could, could greatly impact the way we see it. But the famous words in verse seven. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thou art the man. So here's, here's, here, I want you to write these three points down. Number one, righteous indignation sometimes is simply us projecting. Number two, we need to always remember the way we judge, we will be judged. And then number three, look, whenever we open our Bible, somewhere in reading the Bible, you're going to be confronted with law. And you know what the law says every time you read it? Thou art the man. When you read the Ten Commandments, thou art the man. When you read the uh, Sermon on the Mount, thou art the man. When you read any scripture, thou art the man. Thou art the man. And I hate to say it, Lordship Salvation comes along and you know what it says? No, Lordship Salvation says, 
We ain't the man, right? Okay, okay. You're the man, not me. Because lordship salvation, you have to convince yourself that you're not the man. Because if you're the man, that would prove you're not saved. So lordship salvation, everyone else is the man. And trust me, I know, because I was very much in that world, right? I mean, because that used to always be the joke. MacArthur condemned everyone but himself. Everyone was condemned. Everyone. In fact, I, I made, I've talked about it before. The first time I read MacArthur, I was like, well, uh, then nobody is saved. But he was saved. And then when you get into it, and if you're going to buy into the system, what do you have to do? You've got to convince yourself that you follow the rules. You've got to convince yourself that you fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to convince yourself that you obey the Ten Commandments. Well, any reasonable person who actually studies the Bible, what should they say whenever we confront God's law? Well, that we are the man. We're guilty. Again, my friends in Nebraska, the church they attended, they did an entire sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And what was the basis of that? The Sermon on the Mount proves whether you're saved or you're not saved. If you obey the Sermon on the Mount, you're saved. If you don't, you're lost. And and I, 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 I joked with him and was like, well, your church must be different than my church because nobody in my church is passing that test, including the pastor. But they're all sitting there and you can listen to them. Amen, amen. Why is anyone amening? Everyone from the very first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount should have went to the altar saying, I'm lost. When we are confronted with God's law, what is our only response? I am the man. I'm guilty. Because the law is saying, you're, you're guilty. We've got to learn to see it that way. I, I don't, when, we, when you can be confronted with God's law and you walk away going, I do it. I, 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 you're, you're, you're like the, the rich young ruler. I've kept all the commandments since I was young. I've done it all. And then Jesus is like, oh, you have? Okay, then this is simple. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor because, you know, don't have any other gods before me, right? And what happened then? He was the man. And if we, and I don't, and that's when I get, when I get into the discussions or arguments about lordship salvation, it's what always drives me crazy. Because I'm like, are you telling me you do? And they always like, well, I don't do it perfectly. Well, then, you, then stop claiming that you're doing it because the law demands perfection. So if you've broken one point of the law, You're guilty of all of it. You're in a perpetual state of sin. Stop your nonsense. But they're like, you're an antinomian. And I, I, okay, I'll be, I'd rather be an antinomian than delusional. I'd rather be an antinomian than have a mental health crisis that you can't see your own sin and you, and you're such an egotistical, arrogant jerk that you think you're actually keeping the law of God. That to me is far more problematic than being an antinomian. Accuse me of being an antinomian. I, okay, I'll, I'll, wear the, I'll wear the colors. But at least I'm not delusional thinking. Be holy as I am holy. I do that. Love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. I do that. Love my neighbor as myself. I do that. Well, if you think you do all of that, I don't even want to hang out with you because you're crazy. Because I know you don't. You know why I know you don't? Because I don't. You know why I know I don't? Because we all still have a 
sin nature. So right from this very part of the story, what are we are confronted with? The reality of sin. The reality that we're not the man. The reality that we project and we want to put our sins where? On everyone else. But the text is not done. All right, what verse did we stop at? Seven, all right. Let's read the whole thing. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Uh, uh, I anointed thee king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives. Wow, what a, oh, that verse is so complicated. Okay, I'm not even going to get into all that. Why? How can that even be possible? Right? Why? Okay, I don't even, okay. Into thy bosom, I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had done, and if that had been too little, I would more so ever have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife uh, to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Amnon. Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine house and will give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. That's some serious stuff going down. There's going to be war and your own wives are going to be taken and... Well, something's going to happen before everyone. That's, that's some, that's not, doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Then it goes, and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shall not die. Now look, immediately God's already put away his sin. That's amazing. That's God's grace and mercy. Is it not amazing? Hey, he's already put away your sin. Sometimes we forget that. So let's add this to our discussion. What's the first three points we have so far? Righteous indignation is projection. We got to remember that the way we judge, we will be judged. Every time we look at the Bible, we are condemned. But we need to remember that God has put away our sin. We forget that. Like, God puts away sin. He removes sin. He forgets. Not because we deserve it, but because of mercy and grace. We need to remember that principle, and that's going to be in a principle I'm going to come back to uh, over and over and over. But just remember that principle. Because we have a tendency that we will hold on to someone's sin even after God has already put it away. God's put it away, and we're like, we're like, no, 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 no. It's right here. Yeah, but God put it away. I don't care what God did. I've got it right here, and I'm going to remind you of it every time I get an opportunity to remind you of it. Well, because that's how we operate, right? Well, because uh, when God puts away sin here, I mean, let's be honest. From a human perspective, that God, does that not bother you a little bit? From a human perspective, you're like, David doesn't deserve to have his sin put away. David deserves to die. Right? I mean, he killed a man. Right? I mean, come on. David, come walking into this church. Come on, how would people react? 
would, would, would you be singing his uh, praise songs? Okay, maybe. Okay, wait, we, we should. Yeah, I'm just saying we're not going to look at it. We're not going to be like, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the Psalms are this beautiful hymn book. Oh yeah, written by an, an adulterous murderer, right? We would not. We would. We would look at it in a different way. But God had done what? Put away his sin. But what happens here? The next part is crazy. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast uh, given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. That is, that is, ah, man. Ah, is that not, uh, I don't even know. I struggle with this story over and over and over, right? Because who should die? David. Uh huh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God's going to strike the child down. God's going to be the one that kills the child. But immediately, what do we realize? And this is very important. And I know people don't necessarily like this, but it's very important when we deal with God and His justice. It doesn't line up with our idea of justice. And we get told this even in the New Testament, where it says God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and judge whom He will judge. And it doesn't line up with our reasoning, right? Just, we understand. God's mercy, God's grace doesn't line up with our, re- our justice and our ideas. It does not. You, does everyone understand that, right? Over and over and over, what should have happened to Israel? They should no longer exist. But God chose them and promised them. And we believe he will fulfill those promises. Doesn't make any sense. Why would God save me? I sure don't deserve it. That, isn't that the whole point? God operates in a system of grace and mercy, but that grace and mercy is not always done in a way that makes sense to us. Right? Why does that person get grace and mercy and that person doesn't? Why did Abraham, every time he lied, came out of the place richer than he went in? He, he came out blessed every single time he lied. Correct? And then the, the, the people who were, didn't realize what they were doing were almost struck down. Like it, sometimes it's so bizarre the way things would happen. So there is the sin, and I want you to see the consequences of this sin. And remember, let's just make sure we re- remember this because I get so tired of how Christians use this. Who's the one who gives the consequences? God. He outlines the consequences, Right? And so what Christians love to do is take those consequences and then whenever something happens, come up with our, our own list of consequences and say, well, David, David, God is the one who gave those consequences. I mean, if you're going to carry it to its logical conclusion, then you'd be like, well, if you commit this sin, kill his kid. Okay, well, I mean, come on. You're like, no, God is the one who gave the consequences, Right? So God gave the consequences and those consequences in some cases doesn't even make sense to us, does it? It But that's because, but there is the the sin. All right, now we we got some points. So I'm not, I'm going to skip the Psalm right now and I want you to look at the gospel reading 
and see if you are at first. Do you, when you read, when we read the gospel reading here in a second, I want you to either go, oh, I get it, or go, huh? Right? It's either, ah, or, huh? Okay, right? Everybody, can y'all, can y'all do that? Okay, right. Mark chapter four. Do what? Okay, go full, full drama. Yeah, you got to commit to the part. You got to commit to the part, all right? Got to commit to the part. Mark chapter four. Mark chapter four. Here we go. Verse 35. Everybody ready? Mark 4, 35. You've been following along with the lectionary readings. You know it's been the gospel of Mark, gospel of Mark, gospel of Mark, gospel of Mark, right? Mark chapter four, verse 35. And the same day, when the evening was come, even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, took him even as he was in the ship. And there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Stop there. All right. Which is it? Which is your reaction? Well, there's more, but I mean, you, you know the story, right? I mean, that pretty much tells you where the story is going. Is it, oh, or is it, huh? I get one, huh? Huh? I get two? All right. Three? Okay. All right. So I went, it was, it was like almost instantaneous. It was like, huh? Oh, this is interesting. All right. So they're in the boats. They're crossing over. There's a big storm. What is happening to the boats? They're filling up. They're now full, right? I don't know how the NIV translates it. The King James says, so that it was now full. Right? It was nearly swamped. It's, it's filling up with water. Not a good situation, right? And he was in the hinder part of the ship, sleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They're in a bad situation. They're going to drown. They're going to die. Or at least they think they're going to die, right? And probably, maybe for good reason. I mean, you're in the middle, you know, that's not a good place to be in the middle of the water in a storm and your boat's filling up. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. No, nothing, no, no, oh, nothing that yet. Oh. All right, now in the historical setting, it's pretty obvious what the point is, right? What's the point of the story in its historical setting? Well, obviously it's pointing to Jesus' deity, right? He's pointing at his deity. He has the ability to do what? He's greater than the storm. He's greater than nature. He controls even nature itself. They're, they're overwhelmed. They're going to perish. They can't do anything. It's beyond their ability. They have no way to fix the problem. Can they stop the storm? 
No, they don't have any way to stop the water from coming into the boat. They can try to get the water out, but obviously more is coming in than they can get out, which is going to mean it's going down. They're incapable of the situation. They're helpless. They're hopeless. There's nothing they can do. And so they're like, do you not care? And he's like, where is your faith? And then he says, peace, and there is calm. Now, now do you go the, oh, okay. David had committed some serious sin and his boat was filling up. In fact, he's so overwhelmed with it, there's nothing he can do about it. Can he make it right? Can he fix it? Can he bring the woman's husband back to life and say, hey, here's your, here's your wife back. I'm sorry. He can't stop his son from dying. He can't do anything. He, all, all he can do is like, I, I, help me. I, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he can't do anything. He pray, he can, he can't do anything about it. I mean, the God already says the son is going to die. He's not going to stop the son from dying, is he? There's nothing he can do. Can he make his situation? He can't. Can he make, can he fix the situation where from now on everybody's like, there's David who's never done anything wrong. No, people are always going to remember David has done something wrong. He's the loser. He's the murderer. He's the adulterer. There's not a thing he can do. So metaphorically, and then is there not a storm that comes from all of this? Yeah, there's, a sword's never going to leave. His own wives are going to be taken and used for everyone to see. Okay, yeah, and then everything's going to be made open. And not only that, his son is going to die. All of this is out of his control. There's nothing he can do. Well, to me, there, there's a reason they put the two together. We just read of a metaphorical storm in David's life. The boat is filling up with water. He can't do anything. He's going down. He's been confronted. You are the man. He's exposed. There's nothing he can do. So in the, in the storm narrative, it's a physical storm. I'm not saying it's an allegorical storm. It's a real storm. But it clearly is connected to David's situation. And we, can, we, we all know that feeling. Because what did I just say in the uh, second Samuel passage? We are all the man. We're all guilty. And when we are so guilty. Is there anything you can do about your guilt? No. Can you try to work it off? Even your good works are filthy rags. Your good works would never be good enough because your good works would have to be perfect. And even if they were perfect, you're still guilty in whom? In Adam. So you're, even if you were perfect, it still wouldn't, the first time I learned that, I was a Lutheran. And when I, when I, when I realized, wait a minute, it was the Lutheran pastor who explained that even if you were to do everything perfectly, you would still be guilty because we're guilty in Adam. And I'm like, well, that, that's trash. Okay, like, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. Well, that means my boat is so full of water that even if I was to get all the water out, I'm still going to sink because the boat is already condemned. The boat is already, I'm, I'm, I'm done. There's no, there's no getting out of it. If, there, if, if, if there's not a great metaphorical illustration of our own lives, our own lives, we're trying to cross the water, 
right? And we're in a storm, and that storm is sin. And our boat is filling up, and there's nothing we can do because sin creates a storm. It creates a storm with our relationship with God, right? It creates a storm inside of us because we're guilty, and we usually know that we're more guilty than we want to admit, right? There's been articles written about that the number one reason people go to a a psychiatrist or a psychologist for counseling is because their own self-guilt. They may not even know what they're guilty of. They just feel like there's something wrong with them because deep down we know there's something wrong with us. You know why we know there's something wrong with us? Because where's God's law? Written on our hearts. And you know what it says? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whether it's one in the afternoon or whether it's 1 a.m., you're the man. You're the man. You're the man. And you may try to cover it all up, right? You may try. But sooner or later, you come to the point, you're like, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. It's the same kind of situation. When Peter was walking on the water and he starts sinking, he realizes he can't do it. What did he say? Save me. It's that we have to be brought to the point where we realize the boat's going down. There is nothing we can do. There's literally nothing we can do. And then who do we call out to? Well, what, what happens in the, the actual verse? Look at the actual verse. They, they master, carest not that we perish? Hey, without Christ, we're going to perish. Right? Without Christ, are we not going to perish? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Implying that without him, we're going to perish. So all we can do is like, don't, I need you. I need someone greater than my sin. I, is, who's greater than my sin? Clearly not me. It's going to take someone divine to be able to take care of my sin. Just like it's going to take someone divine to take care of a storm. Because we can't... We, Maybe as humans we can predict storms, but we sure can't control storms. We can try, but we can't. If we could, we could save a whole bunch of lives, right? So then Jesus arose, and he does what? Verse uh, 39. He rebuked the wind and said into the sea, Peace! Jesus is the one who comes to our sin and rebukes it. He takes care of it. He pays the price for it, does he not? He takes the curse upon himself. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, as it says in, I think, Galatians, right? He takes care of it. And then what does he say to our sin? Go to, I believe it's Romans chapter 5. I think it's Romans chapter 5. I believe it's in verse 1. It talks about the results of justification. I think it's Romans chapter 5. I'm, I'm going from memory. Yeah, do y'all see that? How does it begin? Therefore, being justified by faith, peace. We have peace. Peace is the result of justification. God justifies us through faith, grace, and imputed righteousness. Then there is peace. The storm, it, the, the, he tells peace to the storm. Even though our sin is still present, he calls peace to the storm. And then what happens here? 
and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He calms the storm of your sin. How does he calm it? He pays for it. He dies for for you. And then what does he say? What does he say to them? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Without our faith in what Christ has done, we will be left with what? Fear, because guess what is going to show up in your life on a continual basis? Sin. On a continual basis, where is our, our, our ship? Sinking in, in a metaphorical sin storm. Right? We're in a metaphorical sin storm because every day. Did, did, are, were you as holy as God is holy today? Did you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul today? Did you love your neighbor as yourself today? I, can, I mean, I can just keep adding scripture. Well, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty. We're, did you covet? Did you, I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. We're guilt, our boat's always there. So our only hope then is not in my ability, but in him to calm the storm. And he calms the storm because he takes care of our sin and in of himself. So we look to him. If he is, remember this, and I'll use this for a textual justification for what I'm doing. Do you remember there were times that there was a d- dispute about Jesus healing someone or forgiving their sins. And he would say, well, I'll show you. I'll heal them and I'll tell you their sins are forgiven. If I have the ability to heal them from their physical ailment, do I, does that not then demonstrate my deity so that I can forgive their sins? Because who can forgive sins? Only God. Yeah, y'all remember those accounts? Right? Where there's the dispute between the two. This is a sim- similar situation. It's about a real storm. But if he can calm a physical storm, then he has the ability to calm the, the bigger storm, which is my sin, which is out of control. My, my boat is sinking. There's nothing I can do. And no matter how good I decide to be on this Sunday, January, whatever it is, 28th, 29th, whatever it is, no matter how good I decide to be by Monday, by Tuesday, by Wednesday, there's still going to be sin. There's always going to be sin. So you can either run, walk around pretending, hey, look at my boat. It's really good. And there's no storm. You're just pretending. You're pretending your boat is swamped. Your boat is, you're, you're, you're walking, you're splashing around in water and you just want to try to pretend that it's all calm. Everybody else is like, that boat's going down and they don't even realize it. Well, I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to go wake up Jesus and go, hey, without you, I'm going to perish. I need you to do something. And he, and he gets up and he's like, hey, your sins are forgiven. Remember the woman, well, I know not everyone believes the story belongs in the Bible, but the woman caught in adultery. Hey, hey, who's accusing you? Your accusers. I don't, go, go. Over and over and over, Jesus would forgive sins. And that always got him in trouble because no one's supposed to forgive sins except for God, which the whole point is, right? Well, the point, I'm trying to say the one who is sovereign over nature is the one who is sovereign ultimately over sin because he has the sovereign power to die and to forgive. And in him, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. He throws them into the deepest ocean never to be found again. That's, that's, and, and, and David shows up in the book of Romans 
and the discussion about justification, does it not? Does it say something? Find, it, find where David is mentioned, and I think it's in between Romans, it's between Romans 1 and Romans 4. Abraham is mentioned, and David is mentioned. And it's two good examples because both of them committed some serious sins. I believe David is mentioned. You should find it. Somewhere between Romans 1 and 4. That's my, that's my guess from memory. Oh, okay. Maybe it's chapter 4, right? I thought it was before 4, but you, you, I could have been wrong. I'm glad I extended it to chapter 4. All right. Okay. Yeah, it talks about Abraham, right? And then it says, verse 6, right? Oh, we'll go back to uh, look at Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See, it's not to those who work. You can work trying to get all the water out of the boat. No, you've got to believe, right? And then what does it say? Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. If there's anyone who would understand that, it would be whom? It would be David. Because David wanted to go after the person guilty. He wanted to condemn the person guilty. And then he realizes he's the man. And then he's like, blessed is the man whose God does not, you know, remember their sin. Who imputes righteousness to them without doing anything. Just please note, everyone seems to forget in 2 Samuel how quickly Nathan said, God's already dealt with your sin. Everybody go back. Do you see how quick that was? It was almost instantaneously. David hadn't even put on any big production. There wasn't a big production. He didn't have to do anything. I mean, it's almost instantaneously that he's like, you're the man. I mean, everyone look at the text. How quickly does it show up? Look at it for yourself. I want you to feel how quick, because it almost probably feels like, well, wait a minute. How do you know David really... How do you know David really did this? Or how do you know David really did that? Because we always want something from our vantage point. But it doesn't work that way. Look at, look at the verse. Verse 13. Immediately, what does David say, or Nathan say? David admits his sin and he instantaneously, he's like, he's already, he's already done away with your sin. We don't like that. What we would be, what would we want to see? We would want to see, does he really mean it? Does he really mean it? My sin is not forgiven because how much I mean it. It's forgiven because of what Christ has done. Does that make sense? I know that's going to mess up some people's theology, but we're like, you got to show it. You got to demonstrate. No, if I, if the person says I have sinned, you're sin because you're putting your faith in Christ. It's about what Christ did, not what I do. We want to say, jump through some hoops, right? Beat yourself with a rod, right? And you really feel bad. No, 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 no. If the person knows that they have sinned, their sins are forgiven because it's not based on how sorry they are. 
It's not based on how much they cry. It's based on what Christ did. And I know we don't like that. In fact, probably just reading that makes some people not so happy. You're like, why does David get off the hook here? I want you to see the beauty of Christ calming the storm. Because to me, it's a beautiful picture of what he does for us. We're in a boat. It's filled with sin. It's sinking. We can't, we can't, I want to make sure we understand. We cannot do anything. We're hopeless, we're helpless, and we're going down with the ship. And all we can do is say, Lord, do you not care? And then we, if we put our faith in him, what does he do? He, re, he calms the storm. He calms it. There's peace. There's, there's peace with God. And then we can experience the peace of God. And you know why I can experience the peace of God? Because I have peace with God. And so now what peace do I have of? We always think the peace of God. We, I, think, I think we always do a weird thing here. And, and I, I cannot prove this out completely. But I think we theologically mess this up. Because the way we view this is if I have peace with God, then I should have the peace of God for every problem that I experience. And I don't know if that's the direct theological correlation. I think the direct theological correlation, if I have peace of God, then I have the peace with God. I have the peace of God in what way? No, I'm no longer overwhelmed with my guilt. I'm no longer overwhelmed with, uh, with conviction because God has calmed that guilt and conviction. So internally, I now have peace of God because I know my sins have been forgiven. Right? I'm still going to be bothered with circumstances in life, but I, what can I always fall back on? My house may be burning down. I may have cancer. I may be dying, but my sins are forgiven. That's the peace, I think, of God that we, 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 we forget. We, we move. We, I think we do weird things with it. Right. Oh, yeah, consequences still stood. Absalom, all of that. But he had a peace, as it's, right, as it said in Romans, right? Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. He experienced a blessing. He experienced a blessed life, even though the consequences were there because his sins had been forgiven. That's the correlation. So what are our, our basic points that we've taken from this? I gave three from Second Samuel. What were they? Righteous indignation is typically, a lot of times, it's nothing more than projection. Number two, the way we judge, we're going to be judged. Number three, every time we see the law, we should know, I am the man. And then what we should grab onto is this beautiful picture of Christ calming the storm. He calmed a physical storm. Praise God, right? Because that proves he is deity. But if he is greater than the physical storm, he's greater than sin. And obviously he's greater than our sin because he died. He obeyed the law for us. He died for our disobedience. And in him, what happens? 
I am declared perfect and my sin is completely removed. We should find peace there. Not peace in what we can do. And that's the beautiful thing about the story. They don't find peace in what they did in the boat. They found peace in Christ. And, he, and what's, his, what's his rebuke to them? Put your faith in me. And when it comes to salvation, our, that's where our faith should be. And what he did, not what I do. And so many people want to turn it into, well, how do I know I'm saved? Well, because of what I do. You're going to find peace in that? You've got to be, you've got to be absolutely delusional to find peace in it. I do not find any peace in looking to what I do. I, when I look to what I do, I know my boat's, my boat's deeper. It's deeper in the ocean than the Titanic. It, it's gone. Okay, Jack dies Rose may make it to the shore, but I'm Jack and I'm sunk all the way to the bottom of the ocean. It's over. The Titanic, it's done. I, I know they weren't real people on the boat. Okay, but you get the movie. Okay, I, it's over. I'm done. I've drowned. I'm dead. There's nothing I can do. There's no hope if I'm looking to me. But I'll look to Christ and guess what? It's all, sin's gone. Positionally, my boat is what? It's, it's not, it doesn't even have a scratch on it, right? There's no water in it. I'm, I'm holy, I'm perfect, I'm righteousness, everything is good. Positionally, or practically, my boat's still sinking, okay? My boat's still sinking, but I don't have to worry about it. All right, there we have it. That is the lectionary reading for Saturday. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, and 10 through 17. We just read all of it, basically, 1 through 17. And the, if for those who don't know, the psalm that day was Psalm 51 which kind of connects it all, right? Okay, all right. Then Mark 4, 35 through 41 was the gospel reading. I present that to you for your own, your own working on it and what you think about it. But I think there's, I, I just no way I can separate 2 Samuel, Psalm 51, and then say Mark 4, it has nothing to do with any of that. It's just, to me, it's screaming at us. So you can meditate for yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we... The one thing we can all admit tonight is, Lord, we are guilty. Your law tells us we're guilty. We know we're guilty in our actions and our thoughts and our desires. We know we have failed you in so many ways. Help us be humble in how we view other people. And Lord, let us find the rest and comfort that comes from your righteousness, and your salvation. And for that, let us rest in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.